Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Simon's Energy America's team leader for Bloomberg News. He joins us on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So first of all, Simon, are you surprised that Chevron walked away today? No, we're not surprised. Uh, as, as, as Mike Worth, and you just heard him earlier, that he's very keen. We can't stress enough capital discipline, uh, his commitment to returning as much cash as possible to investors, not getting carried away and making bold and, uh, and over-ambitious deals here. So although this, was, this would have been the biggest deal of his career, it would have been, I think, possibly Chevron's biggest acquisition to date. The money that the offer was there on the table and they were pretty clear they were they weren't going to go any higher and a lot of people saw them just staying with this and when occidental came back improved their offer uh it, it was un, it was questionable whether chevron had the the willingness to go go above that and certainly uh, shareholders today are rewarding chevron for that discipline they are not rewarding occidental shares down 6.2% in the wake of chevron's decision to walk away how negative is this for occidental to give you some idea, Occidental's market cap the last time I looked was something like a fifth of what Chevron's is. Chevron is an enormous company by any measure. It's got the balance sheet. It's got the financial flexibility to buy a company of Anadarko's size fairly easily. For Occidental, this is a huge stretch. And as we, we know, they've been flying, literally flying around the last couple of weeks trying to, trying to engineer this deal, make sure it works for them. They've gone to Warren Buffett. They've got $10 billion of cash, a commitment from him. They've gone to Total in France. Total have agreed to take some assets post-deal, which should ease some concerns there. Nevertheless, there is a real anxiety that how is Occidental going to pay for this and manage its balance sheet and not get too leveraged? And this is this is the oil industry, of course. This is a cyclical industry where the price has done a bit better this year. There's no guarantee oil prices will stay around where they are at the moment. They won't go down back down to fifty dollars a barrel or even lower next year. Who knows? So, Simon, you just you mentioned the great balance sheet that Chevron has. What do you think Chevron's next step is, given that they're now passing on Anadarko? I I think any CEO, especially in the oil industry, uh, and the way it is at the moment with what's going on in the Permian, Mike Worth has got to be looking at other uh, other opportunities. Again, we heard him there. He wouldn't be drawn into sort of naming names or really committing himself to doing another deal. He's he's playing as you would expect him at this moment to be. It's playing it safe, stressing the increase that announced this morning, the share buybacks, and uh, yeah, that's what shareholders want to see in the, the near term. But look, what's going on in the Permian right now, there's huge explosive growth there. Exxon and Chevron, the, the two big giants of the industry here, have for years have kind of sat on the sidelines a bit. They've been involved, but they it's only this year that they got really they they made really strong commitments to invest billions and billions over the next few years and really make the Permian a centerpiece of their growth plans uh, and there's a, there's a huge opportunity here in the Permian for these companies and others to come in and consolidate there's a very fragmented ownership in that region uh, there are a lot of independent players mid-sized companies some of them have you know operational challenges 
uh, and what's what's happened in the last few weeks with with Anadarka coming into play has really ignited a lot of speculation about future M and A, maybe involving Chevron, but also maybe involving other majors, even Exxon, Shell, uh, and maybe sort of consolidation between some of those mid-sized players, uh, and really kind of rationalising what's going on there. You know, as you mentioned, Simon, this is a cyclical business, and I think about some of the pain that we've seen in the Shell patch, particularly from the debt market side. We certainly saw that yeah. in two thousand. 2016. I'm wondering whether this acquisition by Occidental is setting up that company for a similar pain later on. I mean, is, are they going to end up paying for this largely with debt? And I'm looking right now at Occidental bonds that are selling off sharply uh, in their investment grade currently, uh, but uh, definitely investors are showing some skittishness there. Yeah, it's a big question. I mean, you know, look at I, I keep going back to the the, the Buffett the Buffett deal, and uh, Buffett's got he's got a he's got preferred stock that's paying eight percent. I mean, it's really expensive to get this deal done for them. And they, they ostensibly did this to to avoid a shareholder vote, but in the end, you know, they, even if they push this through. Uh, it's going to turn around and bite them. I, I definitely watch the bonds. Um, there's a there's a huge continuing anxiety among investors, bondholders, shareholders about what has happened in this sector over the last three or four years. I mean, the oil price sold off steeply back in 2014, and it's only just started to recover. If you if you look over us over the last five years or so, you know, it used to be at over hundred dollars a barrel. Where is it at the moment? It's like $60, $70 a barrel, depending on which price you're looking at. Um, so we're not out of the woods yet. And the last few years, the mantra has been in the oil industry, capital discipline, spending discipline. Uh, you know, and there are, uh, and the, the industry has only, hasn't yet recovered to the, 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 the damage. It hasn't really repaired the damage to its reputation. And you know, looking at the, the commentary, speaking to investors, speaking to analysts over the last couple of weeks, as I say, it's a real worry that does this takeover battle signal an end to this period of sort of discipline and austerity? So Chevron stepping back right. has given its investors a bit of a, a, a relief. Um, but for Occidental shareholders, the anxiety is very real at the moment. And it must be, there must be a worry uh, for investors in other, share, other companies right now. Are they going to take a leap? Is this going to be, you know, are we going to see more deals? Could we see another takeover battle? I mean, that would be kind of negative for, for some of them. Yep. Simon Casey, thank you so much. Uh, I wonder. I wonder where actually where, where is the jet right now? Real quickly. Actually, <laughs> the last time jet. the last time I looked, it was still in the in the Hague. And what's um, that mean? What does that mean? Very good Who's question. There? Just we don't need, look. To be clear, we all we know is that the Occidental <laughs> Jet is in the Netherlands. Okay. Um, we don't know who's on board or why they're there. I want to make okay. that clear. Okay. Understood. <laughs> <laughs> Simon Casey, Energy Team Leader, Bloomberg News, joining us on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I believe Royal Dutch Shell might be somewhere in that part of the world, but uh, Occidental now owns this asset. They now own a big, big piece of the Permian Basin. Uh, they've arranged for financing uh, with uh, Warren Buffett in terms of. $10 billion of preferred stock. Uh, they've met with the folks and have an agreement at Total for some divestitures. Uh, so they're certainly putting their best foot forward here. And what is a very <clears throat> big deal for the Occidental Petroleum folks in terms of assets, in terms of purchase price. Uh, so now the hard work begins. Uh, now let's head to uh, Nathan Hager for World and National Headlines. Nathan.
Globally are getting more concerned today about the prospects of no trade deal with between the U.S. and China. Both sides appear to be hardening their stance. The Nasdaq leading the declines in the U.S. by down by one and a half percent. Really, though, one of the biggest moves can be seen in currency markets. I'm looking right now at the MSCI Emerging Markets uh, Currency Index, which is poised for its biggest one-day loss right now since October 2018. It had fallen the most since August of last year at one point and has retraced all of its gains for 2019. Joining us now to talk about this from the emerging ma- markets angle uh, and, and just currencies in general, Ed al Hassani. He is a Senior Interest Rates and Currencies Analyst for Columbia Threadneedle Investments, uh, helping to oversee $430 billion uh, from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thank you so much for being with us, Ed. I just want to start with the big move that we're seeing in the MSCI Emerging Markets Currency Index. I'm just wondering, is this the beginning of something that could be a real protracted sell off among emerging markets, particularly in South in, in Asia, uh, should the deal break down completely? Sure. Uh, I mean, I think if the deal does break down, we probably see a little bit more downside uh, to currencies. If you look at what's happened, you know, let's say in the course of the past six months in in the EM space, is we've seen uh, the real rate cushion versus the U.S. shrink quite considerably. The EM asset class as a whole has done has done quite well until I'd say about two months ago, which flatlined since. And now we're starting to see some of that volatility in risk assets spill over into EM, um, and 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 generally that tends to be a very toxic combination for for EM currencies. So I'd talk about uh, some of the European currencies, thinking about the euro, obviously the European region, very sensitive to, you know, the health and growth and uh, situation in China. What is your thoughts about the euro right here? Yeah, I mean, we we have liked being short the euro for more than a year now. It's been it's been a good trend. That trend has flatlined, I would say, a little bit more recently. Um, a couple of things have played into this flattening trend and, and sort of the decline in volatility in, in euro dollar. One. European data at this point seems to have a little bit less downside than it did even three months ago. Uh, we've bottomed out in a lot of the industrial indices. We're starting to see some recovery in in export data, some recovery in sentiment data, and that's playing against uh, what we're seeing on, on the trade front and, again, greater uncertainty coming in in terms of uh, U.S.-China trade relations. So those two forces are, are playing off against each other at the moment. And I would add the, the other factor is in terms of positioning, spec positioning, speculative positioning right now is, is quite heavily short the euro. And so I think that, that plays against um, dollar strength as well. More broadly, I would say dollar strength has more room to run. But versus the euro, I think um, we're seeing less and less room for, for uh, the euro to, to weaken. Ed, you know, I have to wonder, the big story today really is the trade uh, tensions that appear to be ratcheting up between the U.S. and China. I'm trying to figure out how much of a game changer, a breakdown in discussions would be for currency markets. How much would no deal between the U.S. and China alter your current views on uh, on currencies and, and sort of where you're positioning? Yeah, I would say I would say it would probably as a first order issue, it, w- it would strengthen my conviction that the dollar will move higher, uh, particularly against two baskets of currencies. First high beta EM currencies like uh, South Africa, Mexico, and Brazil that have performed quite well on a year-to-date basis um, and, and have a lot of room to sell off. Um, and second, developed market currencies of small open economies. And, and I would say they're sort of, I look at a basket of five, the Australian dollar, the New Zealand dollar, uh, Swedish krona, Korean won, and the Canadian dollar. I think that basket is where we've seen 
uh, a combination of things. First, uh, weakening growth into this environment. The biggest exposure to trade and, and therefore this, this global uh, dislocation between the U.S. and China. And then central banks having to step in and now ease policy. And we've seen New Zealand take a step in that direction. Uh, we've seen easing signs from Australia, Korea, um, and, and Sweden. And so all of these five currencies are now sort of at the front line of, of, of weakness versus the dollar. So, Ed, you mentioned some of the areas in the um, uh, emerging markets where you, you rightly have concerns, particularly in the backdrop of a you know a trade potential trade uh, escalating conflict between the U.S. and China. Are there areas in emerging markets where you still feel comfortable uh, putting capital to work? Sure, I, I would say in in local rates markets, uh, we've seen a couple of places where. Uh, you were pretty well compensated. Real rates are high. Central banks are starting easing cycles. Um, I would say if you look around Asia at the moment, um, Indonesia and the Philippines stand out uh, as as pretty good places to put money to work on a currency hedged basis um, uh, in, 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 in the local rates markets. In in Latin America, less so, just because, you know, some of the core markets have done quite well, uh, you know, particularly Brazil. Um, and then when I look around for stress cases, I would say, again, so the, the two issues from last year in Argentina and Turkey, again, float to the top of the, of, of the risk list and, and, and have performed quite poorly year to date. Ed Al-Husseini, uh, thanks so much for being with us. Ed is a senior interest rates and currency analyst at Columbia Threadneedle Investments, joining us on the phone from Minneapolis. Well, as usual, there is a lot going on in the media industry as traditional media companies look at their businesses to see if they can even compete with big tech giants such as Amazon, Netflix, and Apple. Our next guest is part of the top-notch media reporting team we have at Bloomberg News. Uh, Lucas Shaw's entertainment reporter for Bloomberg News, usually based in our Los Angeles bureau, but joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio uh, here in New York. So, Lucas, thanks so much for being with us. First of all, you know, we had Disney this week with earnings. They're making a big pivot to try to be a streaming company. What did you take out of uh, some of Bob Iger's comments? You know, he has very effectively changed the conversation around Disney over the past couple of years. For a while, it was, you know, the, the movie studio is doing so well because of the Marvel movies and Pixar and Star Wars. But ESPN, which had been the profit driver for so long, was struggling because people were cutting the cord, canceling pay TV. And he has shifted the focus to this, these new streaming services, ESPN+, Disney+, and Hulu, in which Disney owns a majority stake. And for the most part, investors are going along with it. You know, Disney says that profits are down a little bit, but they're not down as much as people think. Uh, and and people are cool with that. For the longest time, the the you know the important metric at Disney has been profitability, and it's not anymore. Is this a sort of a recognition by investors that really the future of media is streaming, and that it's going to be expensive, and this is going to be a difficult time? But it's all about how you position for the future, and profitability is that much less important in the near term. For the short term, I think that's exactly right. You know, Netflix has built this kind of colossus and earned a, a valuation north of $150 billion without making a, a cent of profit. I mean, they report one, but their free cash flow is really negative. Uh, you know, Disney obviously can't get away with that, but they are going to have a couple years, I think, where they can report profits that are flat or down a little bit, provided that they show growth in streaming. So, Lucas, uh, you know, one of the things that I think drove the Disney <clears throat> 21st Century Fox deal was the belief that 
gee, if you're Bob Iger and Disney, over the next five or ten years, your competition's not so much Warner Brothers or Viacom. It's maybe more like an Apple or an Amazon. Do you think those tech companies are going to, at any point, really dive into the deep end of the pool in terms of media and content? I would say that Amazon, at least, is already there in terms of spending. I mean, they're spending five, six, seven billion dollars on programming in a year. Now, I don't know that they've had success with their shows on the scale that that Netflix or even Hulu has had. Most TV studio executives that I talk to feel like the Amazon's perception in the market is is vastly overstated. Um, Apple is a is a big question mark. I'm really not sure how committed they are. They had this big event a couple of months ago. They trot out J.J. Abrams and Oprah and Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston. You know, I was talking with somebody yesterday who joked that it was like Apple just staged its own Vanity Fair cover. But we haven't seen a second of any footage, and we don't know how serious they are about selling the services. I think for, for Disney, it's at least now it's all about Netflix and with the Fox deal, buying enough intellectual property, having enough shows and movies that they're going to have a robust service that has thousands of titles that you will have to subscribe to. Do we have a better sense of pricing? For Apple or for Disney? For Disney. Uh, Disney said that it's going to be, I think it's six ninety nine. Six ninety nine, but it's not going to include a lot of the other things, right? I mean, it's not going to include absolutely everything. It will have what you think of as kids or family friendly programming. So the kind of everything animated, Pixar, and you know the Wreck It Ralph movies, all that will be there. Most of the Marvel movies, Star Wars movies, some original series. What it won't have is some of that edgier Fox programming that they just acquired. I think the average show that's on the FX network, for example, will probably live elsewhere. But one thing that is going to be on the app that surprised me a little bit was The Simpsons, which you could see being a natural fit, say, for Hulu, <laughs> which has done a lot in what, you know, quote-unquote, adult animation. Uh, and instead, it's going to be on, on Disney+. Plus. It's interesting. This, this streaming business is getting kind of crowded, one could argue. We've had announcements from you know, NBC that they're going to launch a streaming service, um, you know, AT&T and so on and so forth. Is there a sense out there about how much the market can really bear or is it just kind of too early to figure that out? It's a little early to figure that out. We've seen people, some firms are starting to do research on consumer willingness. I think most people figure that there's a people will subscribe to three to five, maybe six. There'll be a lot more than them. And there are a lot of the already dozens, if not hundreds of niche services that have 400,000 subscribers, 200,000 subscribers. I really don't know what happens to them in the long term. And we could end up with you know, a, a bundle that is not that different from the pay TV bundle you see today where you pay 50 bucks a month or 100 bucks a month and you get seven or eight of these. The question is, will people participate? You know, Apple tried to do that. Instead of focusing on building its own shows, it wanted to package together different subscription services with its TV app, which it has on the, the Apple TV set-top box right now. The problem is, is that Netflix has been unwilling to participate. And if you don't have the number one player, it's really hard to drive customers there. Talking about how crowded it is, Walmart's getting in too with a, a platform called Voodoo, not Hulu, Voodoo, uh, but it is going to offer free programs just with commercials. I'm wondering, who do you think would be the bundler? Bundler for the different for services? The different services. Um, probably one of the big tech companies. Apple and Because Apple and Amazon already offer a version of this. Amazon has this program called Channels, where if you are a subscriber to Prime, which is the, you know two free-day delivery, yeah. you can add on other services. Lucas Shaw, thank you so much, as always, for being with us. Lucas Shaw, great to see you in person. Entertainment reporter for Bloomberg News, normally in Los Angeles, but here with us in New York in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios.
But let's switch back to the China deal. We are, you know, this is the two days that really matter. The U.S. delegation and the Chinese delegation are meeting in Washington, D.C. Uh, tensions are very high on both sides. Uh, to get the latest of what we might expect, we welcome Andy Brown. Andy's the editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. He joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Andy, tensions are high on both sides just in the last 24, 48 hours. Do you think we get a deal here? Uh, look, I, I, I think the omens are not looking good at all. I think it's it's very notable that the chief Chinese negotiator, Liu He, is arriving this time not as an emissary of President Xi Jinping as he did before, even though, of course, they're very close. They've been friends since school days, uh, which indicates that in Chinese bureaucratic terms, they are, in a sense, uh, lowering the um, you know, position of this, uh, of this delegation. It's smaller uh, than it was supposed to be, and it seems as though they're lowering expectations as well. I mean, at the very least, he's not arriving as a grand plenitopary of President Xi to wrap up a great trade deal with the White House. You don't get that feeling at all. So what happened? Look, I think a couple of things. First of all, the economic context has changed, um, that when they began the talks, the Chinese economy was looking pretty fragile. They've since shored it up with a mix of all kinds of stimulus. Um, They've got the private sector firing again. Um, And, you know, on the other hand, the Chinese may calculate that the United States has become more fragile. But I think there's another issue here that, you know, regardless of how sincere Liu He may have been in making concessions, he's now coming up against the reality that he's got to sell this to an unyielding bureaucracy. You know, and Chinese leaders, despite what people think, are not omnipotent. So, you know, this deal to get it into law, which is apparently what Robert Lighthizer wants, this is not a simple matter. You know, to do that, it's going to require a concerted push by President Xi Jinping. And frankly, it's not clear to me why he would want to do that. Why would he, why would he want to expend that much political capital and take personal responsibility for dismantling portions of the Chinese state-owned economy, which the Chinese themselves have identified as being key to supporting the Chinese Communist Party, and frankly, a better model for competing successfully against the United States in areas areas of high technology and industries of the future. Well, it's interesting. I think when we started this whole process, maybe two assumptions might have been, A, both sides need a deal, and B, it doesn't have to be the end-all, be-all deal. We just need to take this risk off the table. Is there an argument to be made that one side or the other maybe overplayed their hand here? It, yeah, it, the uh, clear, clearly, um, you know, this has been a this has been a, a game of chicken, right, between two two leaders, um, and you know, each calculating that they have more leverage. What is interesting, however, it, I mean, even though the markets have been expecting a deal, I mean, this was this is always frankly naive. I mean, you know, the, for the Chinese, a deal is is never a deal; it's the start of a negotiation. This was never going to be a deal to end everything. This was, you know, in 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 Chinese terms. Um, you know, this this was this was going to be a truce. I mean, at the most we could expect a, a fragile peace. Um, you know, to be followed by much more fundamental structural conflict between the United States and China. I guess I'm just still struggling to understand then how there was so much hope baked into what was going to happen this week, and the fact that people thought there would be something signed, uh, given the mm-hmm. fact that the U.S. should have been aware of some of these structural. Uh, challenges to getting through what they wanted to get through uh, from the Chinese. And, and China knew exactly what President 
Trump wanted, uh, at least, you know, from the negotiations. I'm just struggling to understand what this means Uh, about the ongoing negotiations. It seems like there's a huge communication breach here, if not something well, I think we should be taking our cues from businesses on the ground in China. And what they're telling us is they're, they're expecting tariffs. They're already planning for them, 25% tariffs on $200 billion of Chinese exports. They're already uh, stockpiling some companies that are importing Chinese-made goods, and they're ripping supply chains out of China just as quickly as they can. The process, of course, has been well underway for the past year, and it's accelerating now. And if you know what, what you hear is when businesses are complaining to the White White House about, you know, uh, the damage that this is doing to their operations. The response is, well, you've known about this for a long, you've had a year to get your supply chains out of China. What are you doing? So how do you think, let's say, let's fast forward, you know, maybe a day and a half from here and Friday evening, the two sides break and typically there's some release or some press conference or some communique. What do you expect to come from each side? I think it would be pretty surprising if what we got at the end of it was a complete breakdown of the talk. I don't think either side want that. I think it's more likely to be packaged as a, we have serious issues to resolve. We're going to go away, think about it, and come back to the table at some point. But there's no way for, for, for the U.S. not to implement tariffs at you know one minute after midnight tonight, uh, because that's what President Trump has promised. I think it's highly likely that we're that we're going to see U.S. tariffs, and then we're going to see retaliatory action from China. And even if they do uh, continue to con- have a conversation and eventually come out with something constructive, saying that they're going to continue talking, we're still getting tariffs, uh, the additional tariffs going up. To 25%. I would have thought that's the most likely outcome. And it, let's be clear: it, it appears that the tariffs on the Chinese economy has had an effect. I mean, they are onerous, are they not? They are, but, you know, uh, China's had has many ways of cushioning the impact. I mean, so, you know, through the currency, for instance, um, and through stimulus measures. I mean, they've been pumping up the economy through a mix of fiscal monetary policy. As I said earlier, they've been supporting the private sector. Um, they, they've righted the ship. The, the Chinese economy is in much better shape now than it was six months ago. Of course, some of that did ride on this idea that there would be a trade deal. If there is a full breakdown in talks, how much of the improvement will get reversed in China? Well, that's a good question. Another question is how much more stimulus will they apply? And how much can they? And how much can they? (laughs) All very good questions, which we will not be able to answer. But Andy Brown, we will have you back and we will attempt once more. Andy Brown, we really appreciate your insights. Uh, Truly, truly illuminating. Andy Brown is editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy Forum. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.